my name's Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with... Will the Hammer Sloan. Oh, no, you're taking Fred the Hammer Williamson's name, Will? Have you no shame? Hey, listen, he's not the only person who's known for hammering their opponents on the football field, you know? When you're talking about black exploitation, I think one of the top names is Fred Williamson, especially one who was the most prolific out of all the big major actors during that wave of film. And one of the only ones who's still working to this day, pretty much. You know, I remember it was in 2015, Fred Williamson came to Toronto for an event called the Toronto Black Film Festival, and he was accepting an award. It was called something like the Pioneer Award, or maybe it was the first annual Montgomery Burns Award for Outstanding Achievement in the Field of Excellence, you know, something like that. And I remember when he when he accepted the award, he said something like, I'm very honored, it's, I'm very happy to be getting this award from a Canadian institution, especially considering I haven't got one from an American. American institution, you know, with a certain edge to his voice, which which is interesting. And I, I, I think he's got a point, you know, because he is a pioneer. And more than just that, though, he's a guy who uh, had incredible longevity in his career. Maybe after 1975, there's a limit to how many of his movies were great. But nevertheless, he not just starred in, but continued directing and producing his own movies all around the world on the strength of his name during times when, I mean, virtually no other black stars had that kind of setup. And he mostly did it on his own, though. We'll talk about it, but he did start working in kind of mid-budget studio productions, and eventually when that dried up, he went on his own path, directed and produced his own films, and even when that became incredibly difficult, he ended up in Italy at the top of the industry's game so he could continue starring and making motion pictures. I think this is something that's really interesting about him for me. I mean, the black exploitation wave, which lasted, you know, 1970 to 1975, this extraordinary explosion of both major studios and the mini majors making all of these movies like Shaft, Superfly, and all of their lesser imitators. After that petered out in the mid-70s, basically there was there was nothing for those performers after that. Like you would see Richard Roundtree pop up in, you know, a supporting role in Q the Winged Serpent. You know, occasionally you'd see Pam Greer in a supporting role in something. They were treated horribly given their talents. But Fred Williamson found a way to just to just keep working. And uh that's to be commended. It's amazing. Could it be because as per Fred Williamson's own words, he never really wanted to be an actor. What he wanted to be was a movie star. And looking at his career, you can see, oh, okay, that makes sense, the choices that he made, if that was his principal goal. I mean, I think it speaks to why there are so few classics after that initial run. I interviewed him around the time he came to Toronto, and I'll just quote something he said. He said, I'm a black Clint Eastwood with martial arts. I sell a brand. There are no surprises when you see a Fred Williamson movie. I don't do anything to interfere with that brand because that's what keeps me working. He went on to talk about how there were no heroes left from that genre I created back in the 60s and 70s. Jim Brown's not making them anymore. Roundtree disappeared. Billy D. Williams disappeared. They all disappeared. I'm sort of the only one left in that genre that was creating black heroes. 
So maybe his filmography isn't as great as Clint Eastwood's, but he didn't have it as easy as Clint Eastwood did. You know, the conditions were not the same. I mean, they were incredibly hard compared to someone like Clint who had a studio system to fall back on. He got his own TV show, which Fred Williamson was not getting a TV show when he was coming up as a star. And that everything that he got... He got because he fought for it really hard. Does that lead to his current political positions that he has now? Because we should start right off the top that, oh boy. Well, I don't know a lot about Fred Williamson's politics. I did see the video of him introducing Trump at some rally. Yeah, he's a big Trump guy. Yeah. Jim Brown is as well. Stop the presses. A guy in his 80s is a Trump guy. I don't know. Exactly. The thing is, I don't really care. I don't really care that Fred Williamson or, I mean, throw a rock and you'll hit a 70s or 80s action star who's a Trump guy. That's how I feel about it. And it's not really affecting the new Fred Williamson films that you're watching because, yeah, you're probably not checking too many of those out. I mean, I'll just say if I were to speculate, I think there's a certain there's a certain book element of uh, Booker T. Washington to Fred Williamson. You know, he's a he's a self-made man. He's a guy who uh, pulled himself up by his bootstrap. You know, he's also a man who was born and raised in Gary, Indiana, which is a rust belt city, which has been hit with every triumph and tragedy that any rust belt city has been hit with over the course of Fred's 84 years. So you can imagine all those conditions leading to a guy who, yeah, would be an 84 year old Trump supporter. And when you hear him talk, he is a man who... Uh, has a, you know, larger than normal ego, one would say. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you could look at that a couple of ways. I actually respect that he takes himself very seriously. Uh, He believes in himself as well. He also took and takes seriously his responsibility as a black superstar. So, you know, let's be very generous to Fred. Somebody like Clint Eastwood, who was able to do all sorts of things where he played with his star persona. He made movies like Tightrope, movies like Unforgiven. Maybe he had the luck to do that in a way because he didn't feel the pressure of being a representative of his race. While Fred will give interviews and say stuff like, listen, there's a few things that need to happen in every movie that I appear in. Number one, I win every fight that I'm in. Now, that's not 100% true. He's been in a lot of movies, but you can understand why when he's doing an interview, he wants to put that forward. You hear a lot about that when action stars start doing their thing that, you know, their fans don't want to see them lose in these fictional things. But for Fred Williamson, it's particularly important because he's representing something that Clint Eastwood, there's a dozen Clint Eastwoods on screen, hundreds of Clint Eastwoods. There's only one Fred Williamson. Yeah, so if Fred Williamson suffers a little bit from Steven Seagal disease in that regard, I mean, he he is different than Steven Seagal. He's coming from a different place than Steven Seagal. And also, unlike Steven Seagal... Fred Williamson is cool when he's on screen. (laughs) Yeah, he's got the goods. I mean, he's a great screen presence. We all know that Steven Seagal was made a star as a prank. Fred Williamson, a great physical specimen, just a hugely imposing person on screen, rock solid guy, very easygoing and likable. At times he can come off like a little bit of a gentle giant even, but um, like Clint Eastwood, a guy who knows how to do a lot with very little, a guy who knows how to do a lot with just little gestures, you know, just a smile, just a, a small change in vocal tonality. And I mean, you can accuse Fred Williamson maybe of not having the greatest range, but within the range that he has, he's very good. He does one thing and he does it great. And everyone who goes to see those movies just wants to see him do that one thing. And so we should talk about his background a little bit. He was a football player in the NFL, just like Jim Brown. 
he got a bit part in MASH doing a football scene. And if you listen to him talk about that sequence, he like basically directed it all himself. That really only worked because of Fred <laughs> Williamson. I mean, we're going to keep going to that well over and over again when we're talking about him. Move aside, Robert Altman. You didn't have anything to do with that scene. <laughs> this was a real Fred Williamson production. And then he had a small part in Tell Me That You Love Me, uh, Judy Moon, the Liza Minnelli Otto Preminger picture. And then he got a starring role in a film called Hammer. Have you seen this one? I haven't seen Hammer. It was one of, I guess, a wave of several movies that really established him in 72, 73. Uh, Another one is The Legend of Bleep Charlie. Just maybe insert the word that you think might be in there, Uh, as well as Larry Cohen's classic Black Caesar. Which we love. That is an a great example of Fred Williamson doing what he does best with a director who understands how to use that persona. You know, when I interviewed Fred Williamson, I made the mistake of bringing up Larry Cohen, just offhandedly mentioning his name. And I think he chafed at that a little bit. I think, uh, you know, there's a little bit of Herzog Kinski in that relationship, you know? Fred, like, we've seen the movies you've directed. (laughs) (laughs) And when you compare them against the ones that Larry Cohen does, even though I want to be careful with my words because there is a commentary on a film called Mean Johnny Barrows that Fred Williamson directed. And I have never heard of like a crustier commentary participant than Fred when the person moderating will be like, ah, this scene looks a little cheap, doesn't it? And then Fred will just like jump in his face and go, do you know how much money, how many days we had to work with here? Well, I'm sure he has a point. Speaking of movies that Fred claims he directed, let's talk about a movie from 1975 called Boss. Now, Again, when I saw him, uh, that's not the full title, by the way. It's No, it's not. You can go look it up. But it's popularly known. You can find it on streaming services now under the title Boss. And the credited director is Jack Arnold. Now, when I saw Fred uh, at the Toronto Black Film Festival, they screened this movie and somebody asked... Uh, What was it like working with the director, Jack Arnold, who, of course, made such films as The Creature from the Black Lagoon? And Fred said, I directed Boss. Jack Arnold didn't direct it. Uh, He was a very old man at the time, very sick. I gave him the credit as a favor. I don't know if I believe that fully. I believe that Fred was probably a very powerful man on that set. Perhaps the movie is even his vision. Jack Arnold went on to direct four more films as a sick man afterwards. And and again, this movie is at a level, I think, that is not the same as some of the movies that Fred Williamson directed after. I'll just say. Jack Arnold was an old hand at that point, but he was also one who had done the Western stuff a lot. So he knew his way around the camera and how to construct a film like that. He did like a Rory Calhoun film, Red Sundown, and I've seen a few of them and they're good. And I can see those kind of straight ahead directorial styles in Boss. I had forgotten what a buffet of a movie this was. I kind of remembered this movie as just being sort of a Blazing Saddles type thing. But no, it's got... It runs the whole gamut of emotions. You got Derville Martin as Fred Williamson's sidekick in the film. Yes, that's right. The director of Dolomite himself. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the two of them are a delightful buddy duo. They're ex-slaves turned bounty hunters. And in the early scenes, they take out a gang of bank robbers. And on one of the robbers' bodies, they find a note that was signed by the mayor of a nearby town that 
essentially offers the job of sheriff to whoever holds the letter. So they roll into town, they start eating at the restaurants where they're not supposed to eat, they start putting people in jail for saying the N-word, lots of funny shenanigans. But the real agenda is that they're on the trail of a big bad, the evil gang leader played by the great William Smith. Looking almost surreally young in this movie. I'm used to grizzled, drunken William Smith in such classics as the Frank Stallone picture Terror in Beverly Hills, in which he plays, I believe, the president of the United States. But here he's tons of fun. I mean, everybody in the cast is game, is having a ball. And Fred himself... Again, comparisons to Clint Eastwood work in this sense because Clint Eastwood is a flinty presence, a hard one. And while Fred is also like that, he is also very likable and is cool. That you want to see him succeed and that there's something just charming about him when he's on screen and doing his thing. He is very charming. It's amazing how he can sort of go between being very soft and warm in a way and also being the toughest, tough as nails guy just with very small gestures, you know? Even though there's a scene where he helps a bunch of uh, Mexican children go get some food. I don't know if modern day Fred Williamson would be into that these days. You know, I'm sure modern day Fred Williamson would regard himself as a champion of the underdog. Like Donald Trump. Yeah, exactly. You know, because as he explained in his introduction at the rally, Donald Trump is one of us. I'm shocked that there hasn't been like a biography about Fred Williamson because he's had such a varied career and he's like directed, produced, worked around the world. There's probably a million stories there. I mean, the only explanation is that like maybe Fred's a little hard to work with. I Mm -hmm. don't know. You need an unauthorized biography. You know, done by uh, one of those small presses like Bear Manor Media. I think another reason, though, is Fred Williamson has kind of ever since the 70s worked under the radar a little bit. Like he's he's chugged along. He's worked consistently. He's worked very profitably, but he's always worked in exploitation films. He hasn't really seemed to care about rising above that all that much every now and then like he's in from dusk till dawn yeah and i mean we're two white guys so that's probably the first place that we ever saw him yeah i think it was i remember loving him in that movie and wanting to check out more of his films just based on that but for the most part like he made movies for you know what polite society would consider undiscriminating audiences probably a lot of people who the sorts of people who would green light books and biographies who would say oh yeah who who remembers fred williamson yeah i don't want any books that would have to be green lighted i want a book by someone who spent 10 years writing it <laughs> and then puts it out and it's bought by 50 people me and you included that's a biography that i want i want yeah i agree i want to hear all of fred williamson's stories by the way speaking of larry cohen did you ever see the documentary king cohen one of the good parts of that movie is when the two of them are like it keeps cutting back and forth between their two interviews and they keep like denying that the other one ever attempted the stunt because like Larry Cohen would claim oh yeah yeah yeah, I tested I did all the stunts that he did before he did them and then Fred would say no no I did he didn't do that Larry Cohen's full of shit the two of them actually did did really seem to have a sort of like one-upmanship mutual uh, respect slash animosity I mean they worked so much and over such a long period of time but we'll get to that a little bit later because first we have to talk about mean johnny barrows or try to squeeze as much as we can out of this movie well uh this one came out the same year as boss n-word 
1975, and it is his directorial debut. The first 10 or 15 minutes had me primed for something a little more interesting than it turned out to be. Then almost the like kitchen sink drama that it actually is. I kind of wish it was more of a kitchen sink drama. Like it, it feels sort of neither fish nor fowl, you know? You can feel him calling in a lot of favors. You're like, hey, look, Elliot Gould's here for one scene, his friend from MASH. I could not believe the cast of this movie. Okay, so the title character is a Vietnam vet who is dishonorably discharged after smacking his commanding officer. Needless to say, he was right to do it, but there's nothing that's fair in the army. So now he's on the streets, struggling for employment. He turns down a chance to become a mafia hitman, takes a job as a janitor, but nevertheless keeps finding himself unjustly in trouble with the law. So he does eventually get himself entangled in this war between two mafia families. And speaking of the really weird cast, in addition to Elliot Gould as this street smart hustler character who's in one scene, you've got Roddy McDowell and Stuart Whitman as mob bosses with fake accents bizarrely cast don't bury the lead will who's the real star of this film also another friend of fred who appeared in a film with him it is mr aaron banks yes you're probably going of course i know that name (laughs) the star of fist of fear touch of death the bruce lee documentary in which fred williamson is shown having just slept with a bunch of women and then just going to madison square garden where aaron banks is hosting an event to find the next bruce lee okay if you're a true important cinema club super member you know fist of fear touch of death which is really the movie that ignited my lifelong love affair with fred williamson so in fist of fear touch of death aaron banks is he was an actual new york city fight promoter and in that movie he claims to have been close friends with bruce lee which of course he was not That movie has a lot of fake footage of Aaron Banks, like fakely talking to stock footage of Bruce Lee. It's it's amazing. Who do you think is the best fighter, Bruce? Oh, you, of course. Mm, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so anyway, when he showed up in the first scene of Meet Johnny Barrows, just as one of the one of the evil Vietnam commanding officers, I was so happy. I was so excited to see Aaron and Fred together again. And then when he showed up again towards the end of the movie, Hooten and Holleran. Oh my god. And they have a big martial arts throwdown where you can see every inch of Aaron Banks' martial arts skills, right, Will? No wonder Bruce Lee is alleged to have considered Aaron his superior <laughs> in the in the art of the martial way. But the film itself is boring, it's boring, fine, like snooze. Yeah, because I actually feel this movie has some ambition. I feel like it's actually trying to be something more than just an action movie. It wants to be this kind of like street level uh, picture of poverty and desperation. You do get the sense that Fred Williamson only became a director because he had to. There was no other way to make the movies that he could star in. And because of that, they have a very formulaic, straight down the middle These are the basics, but even then, they're a little bit slim for what you would expect from an all-out entertaining motion picture. Uh, And I think he also became a director because he wants to be in charge. He's the boss. Oh, yeah, of course. He wants to be the boss, but I don't think... Do you think he had felt he had stories he had to tell? Yeah, I think he had stories about what a a cool guy I am and how I kick ass and how I got a big (laughs) cigar. (laughs) Yeah, you know what? You're right. He always wanted to be a director. That makes 100% sense. But also, Fred cannot be anything but himself on screen. That big cigar, probably those rings on, that look in his eye, that was his bread and butter. And boy, he acted a lot 
according to Letterboxd, 109 credits are up there. Including some of your favorite Italian movies, like Warriors in the year uh, 2072. 1990, the, the Bronx Warriors, the Enzo G. Castellari joint. Just one after another. Aren't you sad you didn't uh, get to watch the Joe D'Amato produced The Black Cobra starring Fred Williamson? Listen, it's a long life, and I'm going to see all of these Fred Williamson movies before I die. Speaking of authorship, speaking of directorial credits... Things get very murky when it comes to the 1996 film Original Gangstas, which is the final theatrically distributed directorial effort of Larry Cohen. I have difficulty to believe this was theatrically distributed, but good on Cohen and Williamson. They were able to get it out there. Now, this one was produced by Fred Williamson. I get the sense from watching the King Cohen documentary that Fred Williamson definitely exerted a lot of control over the production and reined in Cohen in a lot of cases. It definitely feels like a case of a movie. I mean, this is a movie that was distributed by MGM and Orion, and it it feels like a movie where they were probably like, okay, this is a super group of black exploitation stars, so we'll invest a certain amount of money in this in the off chance that this becomes a nostalgia hit. But Fred, you can't direct this one. You got to have an actual like old hand in the director's chair so he probably grudgingly gave this one to larry cohen what's the studio like we need somebody people know someone in control get us larry cohen original gangsters from 1996 it brings together not just fred but also ron o'neill pam greer jim brown richard roundtree shows the greatest black exploitation star of them all mr robert forster he's here too i mean we all love robert forster that's not a joke like aaron banks so it's set in Fred's hometown of Gary, Indiana, which, as we see in the opening scenes, has uh, really suffered after deindustrialization. It's overrun with gangs. Innocent people cower in fear. Returning home is hometown hero. Um, I forget what his name is in the movie, but let's just call him Fred Fred Williamson. Fred the Hammer Williamson. He's a football star. Everybody knows who he is. He's introduced getting off the plane, shaking the guy's He's hand. got the mustache. He's got the cigar. And immediately as he comes back to town he might as well be the mayor in fact he goes to see the mayor played by the great charles napier with his assistant wings hauser the mayor is just simply too busy you know being the president from decker you know (laughs) he's just uh a feckless incompetent he's running the show there not at all concerned about the gang warfare in the city so fred takes it on himself He, he like goes on tv to declare war against the gangs. He creates a sort of ad hoc... Oh, he... What Importantly, he and Jim Brown and Pam Grew, they all used to be members of this gang that is now terrorizing the community. But they were a good gang back in the day. They didn't kill people. First, they try to reason with the gang, but then eventually, like Charles Bronson in Death Wish 3, they realize that peace really comes at the end of a barrel. <laughs> so it ends with a big... Big violent conclusion, but I mean, there's a lot of violence in this movie. There's a lot of uh, very bloody violence, but it all feels pretty light, I gotta say. I feel Larry Cohen's touch here because it's probably more fun than most of the film Fred Williamson directed. You feel his touch because it's like kind of badly directed. <laughs> How dare uh, no, you, Will? I, I, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Sorry, I'm, I'm not kidding, but... <laughs> we know who the real Larry Cohen fan here is. Me. <laughs> I, I love Larry Cohen. God rest his soul. I do feel Larry Cohen's touch because it has, first of all, that sort of slapdash quality, but also it moves like lightning. It doesn't have that Williamson ponderous touch you get when he's behind the camera. I mean, Mean Johnny Barrows is so slow. It's so boring. Whereas 
like Larry Cohen is writing like a 50s comic book. It's bam, 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 you know, just one thing after another, not an ounce of fat on his scripts. And Larry Cohen is always just very like focused on the gimmick in a good way. He's the high concept man. He's given everyone, everyone in this movie, he knows why you're here. So he's given all the veteran stars a lot of moments to shine. Everyone gets an Oscar clip moment in this movie, and that's something. I mean, that's why it's as fun as it is, because it could have just been sad and slow and kind of a funeral procession, and it's not. It's in your face. It's not good, but you won't feel like you wasted your time watching it. It's a solid B movie, you know. I mean, it it could be better, but then maybe if it was better, it wouldn't quite be as charming. So when we talk about Fred Williamson, I think that one thing that's really intimidating is when you look at his filmography and you see how many movies he acted in. And you're like, okay, he's a cool guy. I've seen From Dust Till Dawn. What do I see after that? And what would you recommend, Will? Far and away, above them all, Black Caesar. Start with that one. And then after that, I would say Boss from 1975, actually. I think another great kind of supergroup movie is Three the Hard Way, which is Jim Brown, Fred Williamson, and the great Jim Kelly. Uh, And it's a film directed by Gordon Parks Jr. And it's just a really fun kind of like straight ahead uh, black exploitation action film. And then you also have Take a Hard Ride, which is, again, Jim Brown, Fred Williamson, and Jim Kelly. But this one also has Lee Van Cleef, Harry Carey Jr., and is directed by Antonio Margaretti. I love both those movies, too. Perfect recommendations. And then, why not treat yourself to Fist of Fear, Touch of Death? (laughs) Of course. You have to legally watch that one. I would say avoid any of the films Fred Williamson directed. Those are, like, at the bottom of the list. And after a certain part, it's, like, all films that Fred Williamson directed because that's all that, you know, he could get starring roles in. Then if you want to see, like, the B-movie side of it, or more like the Z-movie side, I would recommend Night Vision, which stars Fred Williamson, Cynthia Rothrock, and Robert Forster, and is directed by Jill Bettman, whose most famous credit is Never Too Young to Die, the John Stamos film. It is a bananas movie where Fred Williamson walks around in his boxers for a large chunk of it. Would highly recommend it. I'm not familiar with that one, although I'd love to check it out. Uh, I I would also just recommend William Lustig's Vigilante. Oh, that's a great one, yeah. Very fun New York action movie, as well as, I mean, why not the original Inglorious Bastards? Just a fun Italian uh, war exploitation movie. One of his better Italian exploitation movies that I've seen. Yeah, in Italy, there are a bunch where he got to work with like big time directors, mostly Enzo J. Castellari. And those ones, you're pretty much guaranteed a good time because that's a guy who knows his way behind an action film. And if you want another weird kind of famous Z-grade one, White Fire, which is directed by Jean-Pierre Palardy. Have you ever seen that one, uh, Will? I've got the Blu-ray, been meaning to watch it for a while. He doesn't technically star in it, but it's Robert Ginty, the charismatic man behind the exterminator. And it's just a real stew. I believe Jean-Marie Palardy is French, so it's a Euro film, but technically not an Italian one, even though it's got that what is going on kind of feel to it so another one to check so out. we've been making a lot of jokes about fred williamson on this episode but i really just do want to underline he is the real deal he's great at his best you know he's he's in a category of his own and i have nothing but love and respect he you know may have mythologized himself early on in his career said he was the best that ever was and then he became that 
So, I mean, you can't argue with them. Maybe he really did direct that movie and Jack Arnold didn't. Who's to say? That's true. I mean, Fred is. Please, Fred, don't come and beat us up. You, you directed the movie. You directed the movie. As per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Dan Groover. And he goes, hey, guys, I discovered your podcast recently. I think it's wonderful. I've been cherry picking episodes based on films and directors work I've seen, but I'm now listening to the rest of the episodes from beginning until now. Thank you for your service, Dan. I was into episode five. Oh boy. Uh oh. I I can't do I do I do not vouch for anything before episode ten. The episode where you discuss Kirk Cameron saving Christmas. You discuss some <laughs> of the Christmas films you like, like the Chuck Jones, How to the Grinch Stole Christmas, and Jingle All the Way. I was surprised there was no mention of the Ranking Bass specials. I'm wondering if you ever discuss the work of Ranking Bass, not limited to the Christmas specials. Love the podcast. Cheers. I don't think we've ever brought up Ranking Bass once on this show. Maybe that's because I mean, of course I've seen them. Love Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. I don't think I've seen any of the other ones other than Frosty the Snowman, which is not stop motion. So, you know, even though it is a Rankin Bass special. Yeah, I, I've definitely seen those. And I, I think I've seen others because they were just on TV all the time. But I, I don't have any affection for them, honestly. So coming this Christmas, a Rankin Bass special where you're forced to watch all of these um, you know, you probably had to approach them with a lot of nostalgia at the time, animated specials. Would you call those movies, though? Could we do an episode on those? I mean, we did an episode on Hallmark Christmas movies. I mean, are Rankin-Bass movies as much movies as those are? I mean, these are the real... These are the real sort of existential questions that get our gears firing here at the Important Cinema Club. The Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer special's 47 minutes. I'm sure we've watched Poppy Row movies that were like, oh yeah, that's a movie, 47 minutes. <laughs> So perhaps sometime in the future, but it'll be tough because Will has no nostalgia for it. And I watched Rudolph endlessly. But other than that, I was never introduced to, there's one about like a Christmas donkey. <laughs> there's one about um, leprechauns. Never saw any of those. Oh God. Yeah. I have no interest in the deeper cut Rankin Bass ones. <laughs> so our next letter goes, studio and distribution companies. Hey, Justin and Will, I wanted to ask about both of your thoughts on people being fans of studios and distribution companies. I've noticed recent pushbacks on people who love A24. Some criticize those fans for holding up a company that is at the end of the day there to make a buck. And it makes sense A24 is a brand and they don't make the movies they put out. It reminds me of how Pixar used to be described in auteur-like terms in regards to their output. At least that was the case until they put out Toy Story 3 and started churning out sequels. So, is it a bit foolish to be fans of these types of companies? I know some of us are fans of Shaw Brothers, Golden Harvest, AIP. I even heard Warner, Fox, and RKO describe having their own qualities in regards to the movies that they put out in the golden age years what do y'all say i might have said that yes it is foolish to be a fan of a company because a company is there to make a buck but then you own the monogram checklist book yeah then i hear you say words like shaw brothers and golden age warner brothers and i i realize that no you can be a fan of a company i mean especially back in the day when specific companies like Warner Brothers made a specific product. I don't remember exactly like especially their B units like oh they mostly do the gangster pictures they're the ones that do the musicals and so you can be you know a fan of oh this era when they were putting this kind of stuff out like the Golden Harvest films have a particular feeling because they were going for a particular audience and they had a way that they made the movies which is why you would be a fan of that and I mean it's not a lie to say that A24 films even though they don't produce them have all the feel that you can almost see it and be like yeah it's an a24 movie i would say though that the people who are fans of a24 movies are probably as much fans of like 
Robert Eggers or um, Ari Aster or whoever the other filmmakers commonly associated with that company are, as they are probably more so those filmmakers than they are the company. It does have a vibe that when you watch it, you're like, ah, yes, it's this kind of indie movie vibe, this look, this feel that even though that they do films in all sorts of genres, you know, it goes down smooth i guess i mean i wouldn't call myself an a24 fan i don't think i'm a fan of any company that's putting out movies these days and i'm like, I'm gonna check out anything that they put out i like blu-ray distribution labels yeah so i mean it speaks to taste right of like what is somebody's specific taste and if i like this i will see the next thing that they put out and also in our world of chaos we need to hang on to anything to give our lives any kind of meaning so if you can find that structures and liking a company that's fine you can enjoy it that way as my spiritual role model once said whatever works classic larry david not the person who wrote and directed the film that will is speaking of so as per usual you can send us letters and that letter was from juan damien thank you very much for it and you can send us letters at point cinema club podcast at gmail.com so this week on our patreon we're revisiting the world of someone that we would like him to be our friend, Mr. Joe Dante. Specifically, we're going to be talking about inner space, which on a recent episode of the podcast that he does, he got in an argument with his co-host Josh Olson when Josh Olson tried to tell Joe Dante that inner space had not been a box office failure. That he was like, no, Joe, it was very successful. It was open third at the box. And Joe's like, no, no, it destroyed my career. It was a terrible experience. And <laughs> really funny to hear. Have you seen this movie recently? Will? I think I last saw it when I was nine. Wow. All right. Well, Martin short who's back in the popular consciousness thanks to a little hulu show called only murders in the building in one of his many starring roles as well as dennis quaid who doesn't love Uh uh-oh let me look up dennis quaid's politics these days oh no well i'm excited to revisit inner space because i love joe dante who doesn't love joe dante Mm -hmm. and don't you love takes on fantastic voyage Oh boy, that's before our time. All right, so that's what we'll be talking about on this week's Patreon episode. And you become a Patreon subscriber by going to patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. So next week, we're finally going to get into classy British filmmakers because people keep demanding it. They're like, why don't you guys talk about the Brits? So we'll be talking about looking through notes here Richard Lester. I mean, he's classy, right? That's right. So we're going to be talking about A Hard Day's Night, obviously, one of the classics. We'll also be talking about The Three Musketeers. We'll talk about some other stuff, too. I mean, there's a whole range of movies that we could talk about, from Pachulia to The Knack and How to Get It to Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. I don't know Richard Lester as well as I should. I mean, I've seen some of the canonical ones. I've seen Superman 2, needless to say. I really only became aware of Richard Lester in a great book written by Steven Soderbergh, which is him interviewing Richard Lester about his films, intercut with Steven Soderbergh's diaries around the time of writing the book and it's just fantastic and it's a great look into kind of his working message well i'm excited to dive in i'm excited to hopefully get to know better a director who i've always been curious about and i mean hard day's night one of the classics oh amazing so excited to watch that again so until next week my name is justin the clue i'm will sloan thanks for listening justin here just wanting to thank some of our new patrons who include gart Joe Bossel, Isaac Coleman, Kevin Kaufman, Nestor Trujillo, Azar Khan, Reese Cahill, Jameson, Brorsan, Emmett Crudus, William T. Klugel, 
and Nick Romaniolo. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not keep doing it without you. And if you are listening to this and have not given us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast catcher app that you utilize, it would be very much appreciated. If you haven't done it on Apple Podcasts, why not do it on Spotify? Or does Google Podcasts have a review section? Probably. We'd very much appreciate it if you got in there and gave us a good review. And now, back to our regular schedule programming. Will, have you seen recently that Warner Brothers has announced they'll only be releasing two films for the rest of 2022? So I've been following the developments at Warner Brothers with great interest. So Mr. David Zasloff has gotten in there with a wrecking ball. He's been tasked with crawling the company out of $50 billion in debt or something like that. And he has run roughshod over everything. He's canceled so many things. He's he's burning negatives. But what's fascinating about it is that what he's done has devalued the company immensely through the stock market. Like it bit him in the ass real bad. Right. So the company is worth $20 billion less than it was a week ago. And I find that very, very comforting to hear because I saw all this happening. I see he cancels two almost completed movies. And I think, well, surely... I mean, okay, maybe he can save a certain amount of money in a tax write-off, but surely the reputational damage that this would cause would be real. And I'm glad to hear that it is. Couldn't that just lead to Warner Brothers just not existing anymore? Like, they shut down the back lot. Like, MGM went away. Warner Brothers could go away, too. And the guy in charge probably doesn't fucking care. If he burns it to the ground like a venture capitalist, he'll come away with probably like a $30 million bonus. Okay, nothing about that motherfucker seems like a guy who cares about anything. Not for a second. Yeah. This David Zaslav character, I, fi- I think it's just a wretched person. Somebody who, he if he had the negative of Casablanca in front of him and somebody told him, you can save $25 in taxes just by burning this, he would burn he it. He was the guy during World War One. They were burning those negatives for the silver in it. Like, he could not do that fast yeah, enough. Yeah, so this is the kind of guy we're dealing with. Uh, when he dies, he will be unmourned. That's good. <laughs> I am sad, though. Like, I, the idea of Warner Brothers not existing would be sad to me. It's a wonder. It's a wonderful uh, legacy. Where will Clint Eastwood make his movies? And what are we going to have if the studio system disappears? Could there be a filmmaker, for example, that could lead the way if we had some kind of example? Oh, gosh. Who could you be thinking of? I mean, maybe a couple of guys who have been making movies in uh, New England just with their friends for... 25 <laughs> years? More than that? Yes, we're talking about, once again, the... Motern Media, Shock Marathon duo of Charlie Roxburgh and Matt Farley. Because we had a screening that we introduced at the Fox Theater in Toronto. Me, Justin, and our friend Peter Kaplowski. Yeah, we were invited by the Fox Theater in the Beaches neighborhood of Toronto to introduce the, a 10th anniversary screening of one of our favorite movies, Don't Let the River Beast Get You. And what a great night it was. I mean, we had lots of lots of listeners came out, lots of newbies as well, lots of people who'd never seen the movie I before. I gotta say that it feels like we talk about Matt Farley all the time on this podcast, but there's always people who are like, oh, I'm a big fan of the podcast. Never seen any of those Moturn movies. <laughs> and I'm like, I- I'm happy you're here. I'm so happy you're seeing it with an audience. The perfect place to see it. Everyone listening to this, if you have not seen these movies, they're super accessible. You don't even need to buy the Gold Ninja Video Blu-rays. They're like on Amazon Prime. They're on Tubi. They're everywhere. See one at least. Just one. Give us one. Yeah, honestly. So a thousand people have seen Don't Let the River Beast Get You on Letterboxd now. And I feel like it almost feels like we went door to door personally to each one of those thousand people to get the, the, the all the work that we've put in <laughs> as, as Matt Farley and Charlie Roxburgh's press agents. But the crazy thing is, is that like when people see the movies 
they usually love them. Oh, yeah. They're like, oh, my God, how have I never heard about this? This is so charming. Like, if you listen to this podcast regularly, I would find it very difficult to believe that you will not find something to enjoy in these films. Anyway, I just want to say, at that screening, it was so fun. I mean, to hear the... Just the the vibe in the room of some people who were very familiar with the movie, some people who had never seen it before. McGee! <laughs> Just, uh, didn't he get a round of applause when he came up on screen? Somebody did applaud. At least a couple of people did. And then at the end of the movie, when he says, I'm Frank Stone, former professional athlete. There was a huge round of applause. Uh, and you knew that not all of those people were people that were familiar with the film it's just people that were caught up in its vibe that when that moment happened they're like yeah to feel people discovering the movie and then to also feel like people who loved it just loving it even more and to feel to hear laughs at every joke Mm -hmm. what a great night and correct laughs as well i mean listen laughter there's nothing correct but there's certain points that are made so the audience would laugh and they laughed at those moments at the screening. I think this is a thing that like Charlie and Matt's movies have not had the chance to play in front of live audiences that much. And I think that's the missing piece in the puzzle to find a much bigger audience. Oh yeah. When you see them with an audience, I mean, they're great at home, but they really pop with an audience. Mm -hmm. And when you hear the laughter of people who have not seen the movie in the last five minutes of the film, when it's just like (laughs) joke after joke after joke, every time I have tears my eyes before some of the jokes happen because and i'm even like don't laugh so hard guys (laughs) you're gonna miss the joke i know i know (laughs) sorry i'm laughing just thinking about it anyway great night uh thanks thanks to the fox for having us and anybody uh, around the world who wants to do a screening of don't let the river beast get you please fly us in have a screening of don't let the river beast get you have a, a screening of metal detector maniac you probably won't get huge audiences right away unless me and will are showing up in which case you know we bring the crowds in that's right but yeah but you already have with those movies such wacky titles that you know some people some curators will wander in and maybe they'll be like a midnight phenomenon i can see like river beast being a movie that people want to see every couple of months on the big screen with an audience yeah i mean did jesus have 13 disciples all at once (laughs) no he didn't he he collected them one by one but at the end not only did he have 13 disciples but he had a whole sermon on the mount he was doing and that that could be you with don't let the river beast get you (laughs) (laughs) we sound like we have a pyramid scheme of something (laughs) You just need to buy a little bit stock into the River Beast and then you got to sell it to another 15 people and they sell it to 15 people. I mean, that has been the business model so far. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) 